Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. All right, our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. So hear the word of the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I told you some weeks ago when we moved to an every other week communion schedule, I was going to teach on communion because the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, however you refer to it, is one of the central acts that we do that binds us together as the church. But it's also one of the weirdest and one of the most mysterious if you don't know what it's about. I mean, you can have been in the church your entire life, and you know that, like, okay, at the last meal Jesus had with his disciples, he did this, and he told us to do this, and that's about it. We do it because Jesus commanded it. And honestly, if that's been your understanding of communion as you've been in the church, that's okay. It is enough to say Jesus commanded it, therefore we do it in obedience because he is our king. He is our Lord. Anything that we do in obedience to him is good, whether we understand it or not. Like, when my kids obey me, I know all of the reasons I'm asking them to do the thing that I want them to do, even if they don't understand it, even if they want to fight back, even if they don't care. But the point is that they obey, because I, as their parent, know better. And anytime we approach God and we obey Him simply for the fact of obedience, that's okay, that's good. God knows what is good for us, He knows us better. But it's always good to move beyond the simple fact of obedience. But it's always good to move into understanding, to invest what we're doing with greater meaning, with greater understanding. That's what Scripture actually calls us to. We are called to understand our God, to know Him and to understand Him, and to pursue Him as much as our little human minds can. And so I wanted to take us here this morning to really look at why we do this thing that we do. Why is it so very important? Besides the fact that Jesus commanded it, why is it so important that we partake of the body and blood of Jesus? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? What does it mean? And I think the best place to do that is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is, of course, why we read that text this morning. So we come to this book of of Corinthians. Now, this church in Corinth, man, they were messed up, right? Think, Think about, like, think about the most jacked up family reunion you ever had, you know, like... There's that group over there that's fighting, and there's Aunt Millie and Aunt Maud who have not gotten along in 50 years, and that's causing turmoil and political strife between this group and that group. And then there's, there's you know, the grandpa who kind of, like, binds everybody together even when they're fighting. Right? And then you've got, you've got different groups, and you've got different things, and the kids are all just playing together because they don't know that they're supposed to be mad at those kids from that other part of the family. And it's just, it's a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. We used to go to these uh, family reunions when I was a kid. We used to go up to Ohio, and they always happened around either my great-grandparents' anniversary or one of their birthdays. And uh, 
it was just, we had, you know, we would have 150 people there. It was just, just take over a park and just these monstrous, monstrous, monstrous family reunions. And all of the dynamics were there, right? All of the crazy dynamics. You know there was beef between all these people. But as a kid, I didn't know any of that, right? As a kid, I just got to enjoy it. I loved going up to these family reunions and hanging out with all my cousins who I only got to see once a year and just being together and knowing, hey, I'm connected to these people whether they like me or not. Like, we're, we're all bound together and connected by the blood in our veins, by the name that we share. We're all bound and connected by this stuff that's so much bigger than you and me or any of the drama or beef that anybody in the family has. And so we're all still going to get here. We're still going to be here. Now, that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be this beautiful, messed up thing where we come together because we are bound together by something so much bigger than you or me or any of the petty stuff that we got going on between us. We are bound together by the blood of Jesus. We are bound together by being citizens of God's kingdom. We are bound together whether we like one another or not. And we know that what binds us together is more powerful than anything that could separate us. Which is, of course, not a reason to let those things that separate us just go. It's a reason to seek reconciliation. Because we're stuck in this thing together whether we like it or not. And so we might as well try and seek reconciliation and do this thing as well as we can. But understand, when we get together as the family of God, it's going to be a big messed up party. We're going to have issues within the family. But we are bound together by Jesus. We are bound together by the body and blood and resurrection and kingship of Jesus and how he has formed us into a family. And that's what communion is. That's what it does. And there's no better illustration than what was happening here in the Corinthian church. So, like I said, in Corinth, man, this was one messed up family. So Corinth is a port city. And you got all the sailors coming in from all over the Roman Empire. And you got a big clash of cultures within uh, Corinth. It's an extremely diverse place. Uh, People of all kinds of different cultures and skin tones and, and all kinds of different languages are all mingling together in Corinth. And they're trying to do business together and they're trying to work together. And they're from all other, all kinds of religious backgrounds as well, right? You've got a big Jewish population. Then you've got this little Christian population that's growing up. And then you have all the pagans who have worshipped all kinds of different deities from the Roman world, all gathered together. And as the word about Jesus gets spreads in Corinth, these pagans start to come to follow Jesus. And, and they don't really know exactly what they're doing at first, except that, you know, this God sounds better than the gods that I was following before. Right? This God sounds better than the, than the other deities I was worshiping. But now they know, oh, oh wait a minute, like, i got to give up that other stuff to follow Jesus because Jesus says he is the only God. Like, there's not another equal way. I can't worship these other gods. Now i got to worship Jesus, and i got to live like these Christians are calling me to live. i got to live like these people are telling me and teaching me to live. And that causes some conflict. I mean, there's a lot of shift there. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of cultural baggage that these people are bringing to their faith in Jesus. And they don't get over it overnight. They don't, like, magically change overnight. Anybody come to Christ from a, from a lifestyle or a background that was, like, radically different from following Jesus? All right, right. You, you know the pressure when you come into the church of feeling like, I have to be this, but I'm not yet. And, and feeling judged and, and feeling put down sometimes, or even just feeling like maybe these people are really nice, maybe they love me, maybe they care for me, but I still don't feel like them. I still feel like an outsider because my life has been very different from theirs. 
Well, the church in Corinth is full of those people. Like, it's, it's everybody in Corinth, except for the former Jews who are now following Jesus. They're still learning a new way of life, still learning to follow Jesus. And so when you've got all of those people together with all this baggage and all this stuff from their background, they, they clash with one another. And they're not all going to be perfect followers of Jesus right away. And so they're bringing their baggage, they're bringing their stuff, they're clashing with each other, they're doing stuff that followers of Jesus just should not do, even if they are improving, even though they're on the right trajectory, they're trying to follow Jesus, they're still doing things from their old life. And it's causing problems within the church. And to to make it worse, and, and here's what really hurt the Corinthian church, it wasn't so much what the individuals from, from the pagan backgrounds were doing, it was that you had multiple leaders in the Corinthian church telling people different things. And that was the problem. See, the church's leadership was divided. And because the leadership was divided, the people didn't know what they were supposed to do or how they were supposed to act. And so they're following different leaders. And they're saying, well, Paul says this. And one says, well, Apollos says this. And, well, this other dude says this. So, so who do you follow? Who do you listen to? And that's where the real problem was. That's why we got to have unity within the church leadership. Oh, we're going to have a lot of crazy diversity among the people. But one of the, one of the rules of, of your church leadership, of Christ Communities Council, when we get together, is we can disagree and we can yell and we can be mad all we want within leadership meetings. But the moment we step out the door, we are a united front because we're not going to have the same thing happen here that happened in Corinth. We are like, well, this guy says this and this guy says that, and, and I don't know who to believe. I don't know who to follow. And so Corinth is just a mess. And it's, it's very divided. And furthermore, then you've got things being tolerated in the church that aren't even tolerated in the wider world. You've got things tolerated in the church in Corinth that aren't even tolerated in the pagan culture. You've got one guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, and Paul comes down real hard on him. But not on the individual guy. He comes down on the leadership. He's like, whoa, y'all, y'all, like... There's, there's, a, there's a degree to which I understand, like you're coming from a pagan background, you're still going to do some of those things you were doing. Like we can get that, we can walk with you through that, but pagans don't even do that, y'all. Come on. Like you're letting this dude get away with, with kicking his dad out and sleeping with his stepmom? Like there's just no excuse for that. Everybody knows better than that. So y'all got to do something about this guy. And so because of the, the freedom in Christ and because people are taught that their sin is forgiven and it's never held against them again, people are getting away with stuff that even the pagans aren't getting away with. And so Paul comes down hard. And because of all this, there's this great division within the church. So then they come together, and whenever the church in Corinth gathered, it seems like from the scripture, any time the church gathered, they took the Lord's Supper. They took communion together. They would have a meal, and then they would at some point break the bread and drink the wine, and they would proclaim their unity in Jesus through the Lord's Supper. And so this chapter 11 is just one long tirade against their practice of communion from Paul. Paul looks at them and says, you guys are so divided, you can't even take communion right. You can't even do this central act of the church right. Because you guys come together for a meal, and what would happen is everybody would bring their own food. It was kind of like a potluck, only you just eat what you brought. And so everybody would kind of bring their own meal, and, and the rich and the wealthy would bring these lavish meals, and then the, the poorer people could only bring some bread. And they would come to this place, and the rich people would sit in pride of place, and they would eat their fancy meal right in sight of the poor people who only have the morsel of bread in front of them. And there's great inequity within the meals. 
People aren't sharing like they're supposed to share. They're not caring for one another as they're supposed to care. They're using the opportunity to show off their social status. Certain people are given certain privileges based on their income, based on their status in the city, based on how big their house is. All the same things that we judge people for now, they were doing the same thing in Corinth. And in the church, these followers of Jesus are using the opportunity of getting together for a meal in order to make themselves big, in order to make themselves look good, and in order to put down other people. And then they would come and take communion together. Aren't we such a united, nice body of followers of Jesus? And Paul's like, no, your your practice of communion is only deepening the divide. You guys are abusing each other in the church, and then you're coming together and you're taking communion like that makes everything okay. And it doesn't. And so Paul says, I can't even commend you. Yes, when you get together, you take the Lord's Supper. But I can't even say that's a good thing because it's causing further division. Because you're messing it up. And you're not taking it in the spirit that it was meant to be taken. And so what does Paul say? He could have said, just stop it. Just stop the meals. Stop the communion because you're not doing it in the right spirit anyway. Just stop. Okay, I need you to take a break for a while and then maybe come back to the practice when you can do it with the right heart. But he doesn't do that because he knows that what they're doing is a vital part of the church. It's a vital part of their faith to come together and to share a meal together and to break bread and to take the Lord's Supper together as a, as a proclamation of their unity in Christ and as a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. So his advice is not stop this or hold off on this until you can do it with the right heart. It's, I want to teach you how to do it correctly. I want to teach you how to do it well, not because I'm a stickler for the rules, not because there's some perfect formula you have to follow, but because your heart in this is the most important thing. The way that you approach this is of vital importance. Because if you approach it with the wrong heart, it does nothing for anybody. It only causes pain and problems. So that's what Paul's instructions are based in. Now there's one more piece to this that we have to understand. In the ancient world, hospitality was absolutely an essential value of everybody. Across the ancient world, across ancient cultures, hospitality is one of the prime values of every culture, particularly of Jewish culture. If I come to your home and I sit down and I break bread with you, it is a sign of unity. It is a sign of bonding. It is a sign of fellowship. It is a sign of family. It's a sign of being together, united together. We live in a, in a more individualistic world where we value, we say we value hospitality, but honestly, we have no clue what hospitality is according to the minds of Paul and these ancient Jewish people. I was once uh, walking around downtown Boston. I might have told the story before, but I was once walking around downtown Boston just taking some pictures, and this man walks up to me as I'm outside the Prudential Center taking photos, and um, he's, he's darker complected. I can tell he's from somewhere in, I don't know, the Middle East or, or India, and somewhere on, on that side of the world, right? And so he approaches me, and he said he asking about my camera and about the pictures that I'm taking and telling me that his wife's an artist, and so she goes back to Bangladesh, where they're from, to sell her art. And um, so we're just, we're just kind of getting along and talking, very friendly, very kind guy. And then he asked if I want some tea. I said, I'd love to get some tea. Now, we're in downtown Boston. There are tea houses. There are plenty of tea houses we can go to. So we start walking. He didn't tell me where we're going. 
we start walking, and we, we end up in this little big brownstone community, this community of townhomes. And we're going to his house. I had no idea we were going to his house. I thought we were going to a tea house. And so we, I, I, I'm like, okay, this is cool, like kind of weird, but cool. So I walk into his house, and he starts pulling dish after dish out of the freezer. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't make anything fresh, but my wife made all of these meals before she left for Bangladesh, and I have all these leftovers. So is that okay with you? And I was like, I thought we were having tea. So sure, that's great. So he starts pulling stuff out. And he makes me this full-on banquet meal. And then we have tea. And four hours later, I'm leaving their house, having experienced for the first time in my life real hospitality. That's not true. I've known a lot of hospitable people in my life. I've spent a lot of time with wonderful, good people. But American hospitality and Bengali hospitality do not compare. I'm walking four hours later out of this guy's house having made a lifelong friend and just totally enjoyed the company, enjoyed the time. Found out we had friends in common. We knew people in common. He was a Muslim but involved in kind of community development work. I was a Christian involved in community development work. We had all these people that we had connected through. One of my best friends was one of his son's best friends, and, and we just connected so deeply over that meal in his house, all because he approached a stranger on the street and said, hey, would you like to come have tea with me? That's hospitality. That's the kind of hospitality of the biblical world. That's the kind of hospitality that we're talking about when we, when we enter into the New Testament. That's what hospitality means within a biblical worldview. And so when we approach this text in Corinthians, we cannot divorce it from the culture of hospitality. The church was built around hospitality. The hospitality of God toward us, of the God who said to us when we were his enemies, come sit at my table and eat with me, dine with me. Though you reject me, though you hate me, though you disregard me, come and eat at my table. The cross is the most hospitable image in the history of the world. Because it is the God who loves his enemies so much who says, I will die for you to give you a seat at my table. And when the Corinthian church got together and they were abusing one another during these times of hospitality, during these dinners, they were dishonoring the cross of Christ. They were dishonoring the gospel. They were dishonoring the God of hospitality who said to his enemies, come and eat at my table. And so first, communion is an act of supreme hospitality. It is us coming to the table of God, coming to the table of our hospitable God and saying, yes, I will eat with you. I want to be with you. I want to be part of your family. I want to join you. It is the invitation of God to his enemies to come and eat at my table. Come and befriend me. Come and be part of my family. That's where we come when we come to the table of Christ, when we come to communion. We are coming to the table of hospitality that has been set by the God who gave everything for us. Communion is the supreme act of hospitality, both on behalf of God and on behalf of his church to one another, where we sit together as equals, not, not disunified by social status or by income or by race or by creed, but where we come and we sit around the table of God as equals and we partake of the sacrifice of Jesus that opened that table up to us. When we come to communion, we come to the hospitality table of God and we open it to one another. And then Paul goes on and he says, I delivered to you what I received from the Lord. 
And so he wants the people to know, as he's correcting them in their practice of communion, look, this ain't from me. I'm not giving you some rule or command that's extra to what Jesus has told you. This comes from Jesus himself. You do this because Jesus said to do it. You do this because your Lord commanded it. You do this as an act of obedience, not to me, Paul says, not to Apollos, not to any of these other leaders within your church. You do this because you are obeying your Lord Jesus, the one who died for you, the one who gave himself for you. And so he wants them to know, he wants them to know that this is rooted in Jesus' own words, not his own. And isn't that of supreme importance? Whenever we do anything as the church, whenever we come together and we say, this is what we must do as the church, it must be from Jesus. We will not command ourselves or hold ourselves bound to do anything that is not a command of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul's letting them know, look, Jesus himself said this. And then he goes on. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and we need to give him thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Paul starts with on the night he was betrayed. And this is a reminder to the people he's writing to of exactly the circumstances under which this Lord's Supper, this communion was instituted. The very night Jesus was betrayed, he's reinforcing here that Jesus told us to do this the night that his closest follower would turn on him and give him up to be crucified. Jesus welcomed the betrayer to his table. Jesus welcomed the traitor to his table, knowing what the traitor would do. And yet Jesus still said, come and eat with me. Jesus knew he would betray, be betrayed. He, he knew there was a traitor there with them. And yet he said to him even, come to my table. This is a reminder to the Corinthians and to you and me that we are all the betrayers of Jesus. We have all been traitors to Christ. Every one of us has turned our heart away from him. We are his enemies in our natural state. We don't long to look upon and love Jesus on our own. But we are all the betrayers. Even after we've come to him, we betray him. This is a reminder of Peter's own betrayal. Peter, the, the rock, one of the leaders of the apostles. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, said to Peter, you will deny me three times before the sun rises tomorrow morning. And then we're reminded in the Gospel of John how after Jesus' resurrection, the risen Jesus comes to Peter. And he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus asks again, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And then one final time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter breaks down. He breaks down because he knows of the restoration of Jesus. Peter, in the moment that he betrayed Jesus, thought that was it. He thought he was done. In the moment that Peter betrayed Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night before his crucifixion, that moment Peter thought he was outside of the community. He thought he was cast out. He thought he was finished. And then when the risen Lord comes back to Peter and asks, do you love me? and tells Peter, then go and feed my sheep. Peter knows the restoration 
that only Jesus can give. He knows the love and the acceptance that only Jesus can give. And these words from Paul, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he instituted this meal, is a reminder to all of us that we have been Peter, we have been Judas, we have turned our backs on Jesus, we have looked to other things to give us fulfillment. We have looked for love in all the wrong places, and yet Jesus comes to us in our state as traitors to him and says, welcome to my table. Come partake of my body and blood. And he says then that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now this was a Passover meal, and at the Passover meal there are three pieces of matzah bread. And in the middle... At the official start of the meal, the middle piece of matzah is broken. And this broken matzah is meant to draw the mind of the participant in the meal to to a lot of different things. To the slavery that the people of God experienced when they were enslaved in Egypt. To their brokenness. To remind them of the freedom that only God can bring. The freedom that only only the, the deliverance of God can give us. That point in the meal where the matzah is broken is a point of reflection on the brokenness of God's people without him, on the lostness of God's people without him. And Jesus says to his followers as he breaks the matzah in the Passover Seder, in the Passover meal, that this is my body broken for you. It's not your bodies that are broken for your sin. Back in Egypt, when the people of God were enslaved, when the Israelites were slaved in Egypt, it was their bodies that were broken. But Jesus says, now for your sin, my body will be broken. Your body will not be broken for your sin. Instead, I will take on your brokenness. I will receive the punishment for your sin. I will receive the consequences of your sin, of your betrayal. I take it upon myself, Jesus says. And he breaks the bread. And he distributes it to his followers. And says, As often as you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. When we partake of the bread of communion, we are reminding us ourselves that it was Jesus' body broken for us, that our bodies will not be broken for our sin, that we don't longer have to suffer the consequences of our own sin because Jesus suffered them for us. It was Jesus' body that was broken on our behalf. That's why we break the bread, and that's why we partake. And that's why when we do it, we do it in remembrance of Jesus and who he is. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus took the cup of wine at that same Passover meal, and he lifted it up and he said, This this wine is the blood of the covenant. It's my blood shed for you. At the Passover meal, there were four cups of wine drunk. And the third cup was a reminder of God's deliverance. It was a reminder of how God had led his people out of slavery. It was a reminder that God said, I will restore you, though you are broken. And it's this cup after after the meal that Jesus lifts and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood. It's no longer you who will be exiled. I will be exiled. It is through the the shedding of my blood that I am exiled on your behalf. I am cast out so you can be included. My blood is shed so that your blood remains intact. 
And he says, this is, my, this is the cup of the new covenant. Now, when he says those words, doubtless, his followers hear echoes of Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to these verses from Jeremiah 31 to 34. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I'm their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. When Jesus says to his followers on the night that he's betrayed, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, their minds go to these words from Jeremiah, the only place in the Old Testament we read of a new covenant coming about. And they know that when Jesus says this is the new covenant, this is what he's talking about. The day when God will come and he will restore his people and he will write his law on their hearts and he will forgive their sin once for all. No longer any need for sacrifice to be made. No longer any need for atonement to be made before God. No longer any need for a covering for our sin because Jesus is the covering for our sin. And he's come to make a new covenant. When we partake of the blood or the juice or the wine, when we partake of the drink in the Lord's Supper, we are doing this in remembrance of Jesus, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed in order to bring us into a new covenant where our sin will never be remembered, where the law of God is written on our hearts and we desire to do by nature what is right before God. We desire to love as Jesus has loved, to walk as Jesus has walked, to live as Jesus has lived. When we come to the table and we partake of the cup, we are reminded of this new covenant that Jesus purchased with his blood. And finally, we read these words in chapter, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Have you ever thought of communion as an evangelistic exercise? Once again, in an individualistic kind of world, a lot of us come to the table and we approach communion on a primarily individual level. That was never the case, biblically. We've already said that communion is the supreme act of hospitality, God welcoming us to his table, us welcoming one another as equals to the table of God, taking into ourselves individually and communally the body and blood of Jesus, being reminded of who we are as a people before God, being reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And now Paul is saying, when you do this, it's not just for you. It's not just for your church. It's not just for your heart individually. It's not just some sentimental activity you, you engage in because it makes you feel good. When you do this, you are gospeling. When you do this, you are preaching the good news of Jesus. When you come together for communion, when you partake of the body and blood of Jesus, you are declaring the gospel. You are declaring the good news that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed on your behalf, for your sin, in order to bring you into a new covenant 
where you don't have to worry about keeping a checklist of rules and of laws, but where your sin is once for all forgiven, wiped clean, and where you come as equals to the table of God, the table that he has set, the table that you could not set for yourself. You can't invite yourself into God's house. You cannot invite yourself to God's table. He must issue the invitation. And here Paul says, when you're getting together and you partake of the body and blood of Jesus, you are preaching the gospel. You are declaring the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. You are declaring your unity in him. You are declaring the forgiveness of sins that only he can give. You are declaring the covenant that only he could make. You are declaring all of the good news of Jesus in this one act. Whether you have ever thought of yourself as an evangelist or not, when you come to this table, you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We come to the table as a declaration of the good news of who Jesus is for us and for our world. We come to the table as a declaration to our own hearts, a reminder of the gospel of Jesus, of the good news that has set us free and brought us in. If you come with a heavy heart, if you come worried, if you come concerned, if you come broken, if you come from a life that is just a hell right now, you come to the table with all of that baggage, you are reminding yourself of the gospel of Jesus that frees you from all of it. When we partake of communion, we are gospeling to ourselves and to the world. And we are reminding ourselves and everybody out there that we gather not for the benefit of any individual person, not to build up and glorify any human name or institution, but we are gathered in the name and by the invitation of Jesus Christ, who pays for our sin and unites us in himself. That's why this meal is so essential, why it is so vital to our lives. I cannot follow Jesus without this meal because I must regularly be reminded of the gospel of Jesus. My attention must regularly be put upon the broken body and the shed blood and the risen life of my Jesus Christ who has saved me. I need this meal and I pray that you feel the same way. This is not some token thing that we do as an extra add-on to our worship. This is not something that we just do because, well, Jesus said we should, therefore we should probably do it with some regularity. We do this because it is the very life of the church. We do this because it is the very central act of unity within the church. We do this because our hearts cannot be satisfied in Jesus without constantly being turned to and reminded of who he is for us. And we do this to remind ourselves that he didn't just die for me. There's that saying people like to throw around, like, even if you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have come and died for you. I think it's ridiculous. Not because it isn't true, but because it was never going to be true. Jesus came to bring a people to himself a family, and I am better with you than I could be on my own. If you're online with us today and you think you can be a Christian at home by yourself, or if you're here and you think, oh, I've got my monthly church attendance card, know that Jesus did not come to save you for yourself. He came to bind you to a community of people who will love and walk with you. He came to bind you to a family 
And we cannot do this alone. And communion is the act through which we come and we say Jesus came to save us as a family, as a body, with all of our brokenness and all of our messed upness. You know those messed up family reunions? It's amazing how when the food comes out, the politics drop. When the food comes out, the beef is gone. I mean, the beef is there, but the other beef's gone. When the food comes out, that's when we really get together. Because we can all unite around a meal. We can all agree that Annie Mae's macaroni casserole is the best, if you like macaroni casserole. There's something we can all agree about in the meal. When we come together as a church with all of our brokenness, with all of our beef, with all of our messed upness, we can all agree that this meal is amazing. We can all agree that the Jesus to whom this meal points is incredible. We can all agree that no matter what our own issues are, this meal is what holds us together. This blood is what unites us together. It's amazing how when the food comes out, the issues drop. When the body and blood of Jesus come out, our sin is forgiven. We are one as his people. This is why we take this meal together. And I hope, I hope that this meal now has a greater meaning to you than ever before. I hope that when we gather around the shed blood and broken body of Jesus, we can agree that this is the supreme act of hospitality from our good and gracious God toward his enemies. We can agree that the broken body of Jesus reminds us that we are not broken. That the shed blood of Jesus reminds us of the blood that covers our sins so that ours isn't spilled. We can be reminded that this is the supreme act of gospeling, of evangelism, because it points us to the broken body and shed blood and risen, reigning lordship of our King, Jesus. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.